Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It sure is good to see all of you here tonight. Thank you for those who are visiting, who have taken an opportunity to come and be with us, which I echo Reagan's words. There are a lot of other things that you could be doing this evening, and you decided that you would be with us, and we appreciate your presence and attendance. Those of you that are members here, we are grateful that you have come to be with us and all of us together to support the effort of the spreading of the gospel, and at the same time, understanding our means of glorifying God and the means of which we will edify and strengthen one another tonight. I would like to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. This will be a familiar passage to you by the time that we are through our meeting, which Lord willing will end on Thursday night. I began... Last night with Ephesians chapter 4, talking about the renewed mind, but this is going to be something that will help us understand a very interesting phrase at the end of verse 2 that has a lot to do with a mentality that sometimes is in the minds of a lot of people, and that is the will of God. And the question often is asked, what is the will of God for my life, is usually the question that is asked in many instances. In the book of Romans chapter 12, it says in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I must give you a little bit of preface of what we're going to talk about tomorrow night, and that will be in introducing verse 3, 4, and 5, and that is the assignment of the identity that we have as the transformed people that are mentioned in those verses. And then, Lord willing, on the subject that we talked about on Wednesday night as well as on Thursday night, I just want to talk about what the identity of the transformed people means to the world from verses 6 through verse 21. And that's going to be almost like a rapid-fire thoughts that are presented in all those verses that help us understand, really, the bottom line is, when there are people who talk about, what is it that I should be doing in the kingdom? What, I, what should I do, be doing in the world? I just wish there was something I could do. And as a result, there tends, tends to be this laziness and boredom that comes as a result of being a Christian and being a member of the family of God. Well, verse 6 through verse 21 eliminates the possibility of boredom. It just takes it out of the picture. And we'll talk about those things, Lord willing, on Wednesday and Thursday night. If, if you were to think about the idea of identity... And the will of God, I would want you to know that those two things go together. They go very much together. There has been this tendency for a lot of people to think about the will of God as something that pertains to a particular daily dilemma that they're facing or a daily trial or a daily temptation or even a daily emotion or a daily problem that they're facing. Is it to say what, what they're dealing with at this moment, and it's coming on to them a day, in a daily process, it becomes to be for them, that's what God's will is for my life. 
to be right here and experience all that. But then when you get to talk to other people, they would like to remove themselves from all this daily dilemma and doubts and dysfunction and uncertainties, and they would like to change. In other words, they'd like to go through a transformation, but yet it's more conducive to the transculture. So whatever is uncomfortable for them, which is a very dated dilemma, all these emotions that they're tying themselves to, and when somebody introduces something to them that makes them think a little bit more about changing, so they're really attracted to that. And if it's a matter of changing their biological gender, then they'll do that. They'll change from male to female or female to male so that they will feel better or they'll feel more comfortable. And then what they will do as a result of all those trans changes that they make in their life, then for them, that becomes to be the will of God. Interesting how people will define their life as an identity to the will of God. But then when you look at it biblically, then we see something that I want to introduce to you back in Romans chapter 11 in a matter of preview of verse chapter 12, where it says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him, and as to be recompensed to him again. For if him, and through him, and unto him, are all things to be the glory forever. Amen. Then when you, when you talk about the will of God in reference to that context, then there's some things about the will of God that we just don't know. His ways are past tracing out. This is the American Standard Version. His judgments are unsearchable. It's almost like Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God. However, with that, my faith, your faith, should be trusting in this God who has such wisdom and knowledge that his will will work out for his glory. Now, I want you to think about his glory in reference to what's stated in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This matter of God's will. Where he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may, you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That, that is a matter of a will of God of which you find very clearly, whoops, excuse me, I've gone a little bit too far here. Oh, back here. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it's a matter of the transformed will of God that's revealed to us that we know exactly what it is that God wants us to do. In other words, as I was mentioning to you a while ago, all these doubts and uncertainties that people have, all that's removed, all this mystery of what God's will is, in the context of verse 2, for the transformed individual, they know and they can know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's very much like what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3 through verse 5. When, when I write these things, or when you read these things, you can perceive the knowledge of God just as I know it. So therefore, here, let's, let's just think about this just a minute. If there are people out here in the world that are just totally unknown or ignorant of God's will, and you know it, 
And it's not to say that you have been some mysteriously and mystically and supernaturally been revealed something to you that they don't know. Then you can take their scriptures and the will of God and you can reveal them something that they've never heard before. And it be the will of God. And it be exactly what God wants them to do. Just like it was for you. So therefore, we're going to go, in, go into this and understand that the greatest desire that we should have, number one, is back to verse one. Hear the invitation. I beg you, knowing the motive is by the mercies of God, that we become to be the people who will sacrifice ourselves in verse one. And as we talked about last night, not being conformed to the world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That places us right in line with the identity of the transformed individual that we should be. Now, as a result of that, as this next question, which you've already seen, already God's will, what is this as it relates to the transformed individual? Is it some great, wonderful plan that I've yet to see? Well, go with me to an example in the book of Matthew chapter 19 just a minute. In Matthew chapter 19, and this question that is raised by this man who comes to Jesus is very similar to asking, what is God's will? What is God's plan for me? He asks a question, verse 16, of the book of Matthew 19, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? It's almost parallel to say, what is God's will for me? And then it goes on down. He understands that he has followed the commandments, as Jesus states, and even ask a question in verse 20. What do I lack? Jesus said to him, If thou wouldst be perfect, go sell what, that which thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Okay, now the, this, is, this is the will of God being presented to him that really, as we talked about last, yesterday, was digging really deep into his life to make a radical change in him that he thought maybe there was a second alternative, an exterior moment of which he might be able to change something on the outside that pro provides him this eternal life. Yet it goes deeper than that, uh, which Jesus says to him, go sell that which you have, and you will be, as it says, perfect. And I want to parallel that to what's going on in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, you do that as a transformed individual, that which is the perfect will of God, acceptable and good will of God. So now this man knows what it would take to follow the will of God. But do you see his response to this? Do you see his response to it? You may not ever think that you'd be in that same position to go to that level having to make such changes. Therefore, when you talk about the will of God, let's just make sure that we know that this is not our will that we're doing. This is the will of God that we're asking to be done to find ourselves renewed and be transformed. And I'm challenged with that all the time to make sure that this is what God's will is and not what Sean Bain's will is. So that way my identity meets right along with what Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, the transformed individual.
But let's go further. Look at First Peter chapter 1. In First Peter chapter 1, when you look at what is stated in the very first chapter, there are some things that are stated here in verse 14 to verse 16 that presents to you what God's will is. And then he, he uses this phrase in verse 14, very similar to what is stated in the phrase of Romans 12, verse 2, be not conformed to the world. When he talks about having your hope set perfectly on the grace as they brought the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 13, he says, as children of obedience, not fastening yourselves according to your former lusts in the time of your ignorance. But like as he who called you is holy, be yourselves also holy in all manner of living, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What a wonderful opportunity to be holy as God is holy. God's will. Now, again, that word holy, that word is identical to the word holy over in the book of Romans chapter 12. Holy, will of God, becomes as a result of the individual who wants to be holy like God. See what this transformed individual is doing. Therefore, you're getting a little bit bigger picture of what this idea of transformation is like. It's to be holy as God is holy. Because you're looking into the holy will of God to find out what God's will is. To be holy as He is holy. But let's go further. Let's go further. Over in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is where the statement is made. When it talks about, finally, brethren, we beg you, we beseech you, and exhort you. Similar phrases that are mentioned by Paul to the brethren in Rome in chapter 12, verse 1. We beseech you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you walk, or excuse me, receive as from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, even as you do also walk, that you abound more and more. For you know what charge we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Here it is. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification that you abstain from fornication. That each one of you know how to possess of himself his own vessel in sanctification and honor. This is the will of God. And the definition of the will of God in that is even your sanctification. Which, to a negative standpoint, is that you find yourself avoiding and abstaining from the fornication. So now you're getting even a bigger picture of what God's will is for you. It's abstaining from certain fleshly lusts like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 was talking about. And it's also providing for you an opportunity that you are set apart, you're sanctified for the purpose of identifying, being identified rather, as a transformed individual. But let's go further. This is something very simple. Chapter 5. This is chapter 5 of the same book. You look a little bit further down in verse 18 where he says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus to you, word. That's just one very simple thing to help you understand what the mindset as well as the behavior and attitude of a transformed individual is. Thankful. Thankful. In all things. Thankful in all things. And I guess if we had time to really sit down and meditate upon that, we would understand very clearly what the idea of thanksgiving has to do in my heart toward the idea of being transformed. Especially when you connect it with the mercies of God. 
when the alternative could have been shown to me, and that's his wrath and judgment. So this idea of thanks as the will of God really fits in clear with this idea of being transformed as part of God's will. But let's go further. Look in the book of 1 Peter again. And this is in chapter 2. This is a matter of where you're out before the world in a specific relationship that relates to man's ordinance. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he talked about us being sojourners, and he said, I beg you, or I beseech you, same phrase that's mentioned in the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that your behavior should be seemly among the Gentiles, in verse 12, wherein they speak against you as evildoers, you may by, by your good works, which they behold, glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or in the governors as sent by him for vengeance on the evildoers, and for praise to them that do well. For so is the will of God that by well-doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here's the will of God. You find yourself in subjection toward the ordinances of man. This is God's will. One of the most interesting things about that is that there are people who are looking for God's will while at the same time robbing from the company in which they work. There are people who are looking for God's will while simultaneously lying to other people that are their friends or family members. There are people who are looking for God's will while at the same time involved in violent domestic and child abuse. There are people who are looking for God's will while simultaneously cheating other people, especially through their taxes. So there, it's interesting to me how that there are people who are looking for God's will, yet all, they're doing all these things contrary to what you see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and verse 15. So be the will of God with well-doing, you may be putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men. God's will for my life is to be an obedient, respectful, honorable citizen to authority. While some other people are trying to avoid and get around and break the law without being caught, here I am understanding the value of what the will of God is. Simple. That's what a transformed individual looks like. And then it really boils down to this one phrase. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Wherefore, be not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In the context of what we're looking at here, in the book of Romans chapter 12, it is very much a part of what we can do to understand what his will is. In Ephesians 5, 17. It takes time to find it. You've got to have a lot of energy in going into reading it. And you need to pray diligently that that will will be revealed to you and that your mind will not be closed and the voices of the world will not be dominant, but that the voices of God can be strongest, clearest, most reliable, most dependable, and definitely for you, the ones that you want to obey. 
Here's where I'm going to spend the rest of the lesson this evening, and that is, can the transformed, by the renewing of their mind, can they prove the will of God? In other words, if you, if you say to somebody that you are a Christian, okay, they, may, they may not say it, but in the back of their mind they're thinking, I want this person to prove that, that they are. Then there's somebody might just come out to you and say, well, I want you to prove that you're a Christian. Prove it to me. I remember when I was growing up as a little boy, anybody that said they could do something that was just out of the ordinary, like jump from here to here, or when, they, when we were playing basketball, they would say, I can touch the rim or I can dunk a basketball. We would say, prove it. Prove it. Can you do this? We would say, it was, all, it was a common phrase, prove it. Prove it. Can you run faster than this other person? Prove it. Anything that ever they could think of. We'd say, prove it. And the same thing's true with what you're talking about regarding the will of God. When you associate the idea of a transformed individual as a Christian, and somebody knows about that regarding your life, they may be looking at you to say, okay, let's prove it. Let's prove it. Prove your identity. Prove that this is who you are. In other words, it's just like Romans chapter 12. And look at those three words again. As he mentions in verse 2, at the end of that phrase, as he talks about this idea of transformation, he talks about let's see what we can do to prove what is the good. And this is definitely that which is the standard, that which is good, not by the standards of the world. The other which is acceptable, which we would say that's what God approves of, pleases him, and then the perfect. Will of God. In other words, it's complete, it's mature, everything about it is all that you need. In other words, can there be somebody who can prove through their life that they're responsible, accountable, and this will definitely happen with those people that are Christians? It's a very key part of our life. Now, before I go into this, I just want to say, lay a little bit of a groundwork here. And I know I will not cover everybody's career path and what you're doing in your work and all that. But let's just say with your lawyer or you're in the medical profession or you uh, are law enforcement or whatever company you work for, you've got certain, let's say there's certain ethical standards uh, which are stated that you either have to memorize and quote back to somebody or they read it off to you you got all these particular standards and ethical matters of which you need to be following, and they will say, do you do that? And they, you may have to raise your hand, or you may have to sign, or whatever it may be, to say that you will follow through with all these standards and all these particulars and all these ethical matters, morality, whatever it may be. And you sign off on that. Or somebody signs off on that for you. And not only that, they have witnesses to that, to your pledge to do it. And that's common. That's common everywhere. In essence, when you sign, when you pledge, when you say I do, when you approve, whatever it is, or you agree, then you are allowing yourself to be scrutinized 
in whatever way to prove that you will maintain, follow, and obey those guidelines. Now, in Scripture, we look at this word prove, and it's a Greek word that comes up and helps us understand very clearly that this is to scrutinize. You are testing something to see if it's genuine. If the person who states who they are, identifies themselves, that's who they are, then that gives credibility to the absolute truth of Scripture that they are Christians. In other words, it's very similar to a phrase that I heard a long time ago, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. So they won't prove that you were a Christian. Because how in the world could there be a possibility of there being conversions of people in the world to Christianity when the people that say they are are really not people who have changed at all? There's no difference whatsoever. They just fail to transform. They don't prove anything. How in the world could the Scripture be considered absolute? How could the Scripture be considered credible? makes perfect sense. I mean, it's legitimate that somebody would come along and say, well, if you don't really believe this, how can I know? Or in other words, if you don't show this, how can I know what a Christian is supposed to be? You're not being very attractive in all that you're doing. And there are some people that whether they've been a Christian for 10 years or 15 or 20, it's not any different than they were for the first year after they became a child of God. There's no attraction whatsoever to this. Who's going to be attracted to the gospel with that kind of demonstration? It proves nothing. It proves nothing. I am the one, I am the one that is held accountable to what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. To prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That transformation is definitely going to hopefully prove that I am this person. That I'm the one among other people who can make the judgment of what's right and what's wrong. If you go to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, why don't you listen to something that is stated here. Listen to these words. As he is talking about how it is that we need to be imitators of God in verse 1, and we need to be people that are not part of this fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, all this, he mentions something in verse 8. For we were once, or ye were once, partakers of darkness but are now light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving, proving what is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And then verse 11 sounds a whole lot like the beginning of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. He has a little bit of more information about what you can do to the works of darkness. But go a little bit further. In chapter 5, as we mentioned a while ago in verse 17, but go back to verse 11. Having no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, verse 17 says, Wherefore be not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. But let's go over to John chapter 7. In John 7's case, there was some difficulty about whether or not this teaching that Jesus was presenting to people was really either from heaven or it was something he designed of his own, or where did he get all this? 
Jesus answered them and said in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man willeth to do the will, his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. There's been a lot of times I would take that and apply that to me. If any man wills to do the will of God, he'll know if the teaching that I give is of God or whether I'm just talking about what I like or what I want or what I think is in my best interest or if it really presents somebody that's transformed. Transforming is what really appraises the will of God is the most excellent way. Not just a way, but the most excellent way. And that's exactly the way Paul was describing it. In Philippians chapter 1, when he was talking about in verse 9, your love may abound more and more and more in all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere, and watch this, void of offense until the day of Christ. If you abound more and more, then everybody's going to want, they're going to know what love is, without a doubt. But there will also be people who will not. <clears throat> now, they may mock and criticize. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. They may do that, yet really they cannot hold you a, to blame for the fact that they don't want to be a Christian. Because they witness it, see it, you prove it, but they can't hold you responsible because you're doing everything God wants you to do to approve the things that are excellent. Wonderful opportunity that all of us have to do just this. But before we go on, I want you to look at something in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, there's a tendency sometimes to be the preacher-teacher rather than the submissive servant in obedience. The Jews, they would bear the name of a Jew, verse 17, Rest him on the law, glory in God, know his will, approve the things that are excellent, as we've just stated in all these things, talking about the will of God. And then the questions start coming about what they're teaching in comparison to what they're doing. The bottom line is this. Look at verse 24. The name of God is blasphemy. Well, excuse me, verse 23. Thou who gloriest in the law... Through thy transgression of the law, dishonored thou God. Who believes God because of what they've done? Very few. Goes further. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you. And I just want to pause there for a minute just to let you examine to see whether well, or not that really falls in line with who you are. Speak it talk about it, relay it to somebody else's heart, but yet you're the one that will least likely apply it. And again, it proves nothing. Other than you could be like a Pharisee or a Jew. In other words, you could be considered the category of a hypocrite. That would be the best it would be. Yet that's not the identity of the transformed. That's not their identity. I want to just, before we end this lesson, I'm going to give you about four things that I think are very, very important about this idea of being transformed by the will of God and to prove this. 
One of the very first things I want you to think about is, is, is this question right here. Is transforming easier for some than it is for others? Some, some will consider this idea of transformation, and they may look at, look at you, and they may point at you and say, it's easier for you to do this because you've been to church all your life, and you've read the Bible, and you've been to Bible classes. My environment and my raising was nothing like that. My environment that I was in, we, we didn't go to church. We did not have that frame of reference that you had. Matter of fact, there was so much abuse and so much violence and so much hatred, so much chaos that was there, you would, you would not want to dare walk in our front door if you knew what was taking place. You just don't know how I was raised. You, don't, you have no idea what my frame of reference is. Therefore, to you, this idea of being transformed or proving what is a good, acceptable, perfect will of God, that's easy for you. But for me, that's very, very difficult. It's going to be very hard for me because of all the constant conflict and all the verbal abuse that I've got. Everything was going on in my house. But folks, let me let you understand something about this. Regardless of your reference of where you were in the past, every individual can, in view of the lack of their knowledge and information that they were given in the past, can come to know the perfect, good, complete will of God. Everybody. And I should not be the one that holds it over their head to say, I just don't know if you're going to make it because of what your past was like. Yes, it, there's no doubt that the past might have been difficult for them. And, and the challenge is absolutely horrendous. Yet that is not the excuse for the fact that they couldn't be transformed and prove what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Case in point. Diane and I had the great privilege to go to New York City and preach at the church at West Manhattan. Up there, and it was, I would guess you'd say, a melting pot of different people from all different cultural backgrounds. There's this one guy that comes in there, and looking at him, he... he well, let's just say it. He looks scary. He looks scary. He comes in. He has these real dark black sunglasses on, has a, I don't know, ski hat or some kind of toboggan on his head, has a coat on, and he takes this off. And he has a tattoo that's up. I mean, it's covered his forehead, down his face, across his cheeks, down both arms. I mean, covered, absolutely covered. Right in the middle of his forehead, right there just above his, his nose, is a cross that he had tattooed on his head. This man is a brother in Christ. He said to me in our discussion of where, I mean, he was a drug addict. He was a part of a gang. He'd been convicted of crime. He'd been in jail for I don't know how long a period of time. He was in Colorado when all this happened. Here he comes to New York City. He learns the gospel over in Colorado, comes to New York City. He comes into the church there. He's a member of the family of God. He said, if there's any one thing I could do, is take all this off. But it's forever there. And that's a person you would think, it's going to be hard for him. But then point number two I want you to think about is this one. Sometimes 
we might need to ask ourselves the question, is the proving of the will of God something as a motive to prove to people something rather than it being the motive based upon what verse 2 says of the mercies of God? In other words, I've got to do what I can to show very proudly to other people that this could be done in view of what I used to be like. I'm going to show them that they cannot talk to me about how difficult my life was. They cannot talk to me about helpless, how helpless and hopeless it was in my life. I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to show them, I'm going to prove to them that I can do this. I can be changed. And I will show it to them if it's the last thing I do. Folks, you don't become a Christian to prove to somebody that you can be better. You let the mercies of God in verse 2 of Romans 12 be the motive for why you want to be a child of God, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then you let that gospel prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God in your life. Not to prove anybody wrong. Not to prove to yourself that you can do it. It's not a proudful moment. Oh, I think it's so wonderful that we listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, where it says, Be not deceived. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. Definitely, no doubt, becoming transformed takes you out of the misery of where you were. No question about that. But you don't take your misery and become a Christian and say, see there, I got myself out of this. Don't do that. That's not what this is. And, and let, let me just say this along with this idea of the proving and, and kind of making it be kind of one of these proud moments for you. If there's a moment, even in the midst of your teaching other people, that, that matter transforming into the identity of what God wants them to be, is one of those moments of which they listen to you and they're very curious about this information that you're giving to them from Scripture and they want to know more, they want to know more. They're, in other words, for all of you that are young people, they want to be around you more and they want to be around some of you married couples because they don't have a marriage like that. And they're around all these people that are so kind, so nice, so merciful, so graceful, so gracious, and they want to do so many things for you. And they want to be around you. They want to invite you to their house. And they're so curious about all those wonderful things. And, and as a result of that, you don't become a Christian because you're curious about what they're doing and you just, you're so fascinated about it that you just want to be around a group of people that you can be accepted. And feel so good about the fact that you come to church at Timberland Drive. This is not a proudful moment. But then, it gets into this one. Is the matter transforming? Something that which, when you think about this, proving what is good, acceptable, perfect will of God is something of which we devalued. We make a very grievous mistake to devalue or undervalue it and underestimate the amount of transformation to say there's not very much you'll have to change. 
there's not a whole lot you're going to have to do different than what you're doing right now. I have heard people say that about they're referring to the life of an individual that's not a Christian yet and make the statement that they're just so close. And they don't really have anything much to change. And there's not much they need to do any different than just to be baptized. Why did Peter go to Cornelius? According to Acts 11, he needed words to bring about his salvation. But I want you to go to Acts chapter 10 and listen to these words. In Acts chapter 10, these are Peter, out of his own mouth said, of a truth I perceive, verse 34, that God is no respect of persons. That was really what was happening in that whole context there. But then he said, in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is acceptable to him. Acceptable to him. Prove what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God. Because he, Cornelius, needed to be transformed, radically changed. It wasn't just a few little things he needed to adjust here or there. It wasn't just take this away, put this in his place. And it's not just like being a, kind of like being a Jew, don't follow the old law anymore, come follow the new law now. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what the background of all those about 3,000 people were in the book of Acts 2, to know where their frame of reference was. And really, it doesn't matter. But they were trying to prove what is a good, acceptable, perfect will of God through their transformation. And some people would look at, let's say, who would it be? Lydia, in the book of Acts 16. She's praying. Religious people do that. Christians do that. There's not much more that lady needed to change. Except maybe not doing it on the Sabbath day kind of thing. What's, what was going on in the background of the Ethiopian eunuch? What was happening in the background of the Philippian jailer? What was happening with Crispus? What was happening all the, in the lives of all those people? Is it just that they don't need to change a whole lot of things? Do we kind of underestimate and undervalue what the idea of transformation is all, all about. And as a result, we, we, even as Christians, kind of become discouraged because we can't get rid of this feeling toward family. But I can, I tell you what I'll do. I'll be able to love the brethren. No problem there. But I just can't get past all these issues with my family. What about the idea of how it is that we're individuals that I wish I could be the teacher of a class, but since I can't teach, I'll just come on Sunday morning for worship and Sunday night for worship. I'll just do that much. We kind of underestimate a lot, and we undervalue. And we have sometimes accepted this dysfunctional behavior and attitude on our part, as if to say other people will. And it may not be they know anything about it. But we've accepted this dysfunction, and we've not made any radical change whatsoever. We've just merely done something superficial, just to make ourselves feel a little bit better. We have not really seen what the one true moment 
our transformation is from not being conformed to being transformed. Just the way God wanted, turning us around. But then here's number four. Can you prove it? Some people say, I'm going to have a hard time doing this. Matter of fact, I don't think I can. I really don't think transforming is possible for me. And they just kind of give up. They just kind of throw in the towel, close their Bible, and say it's just not possible. It just can't happen with me. I'll never be any different. In other words, they've accepted an identity that is conformed to the world more than it's transformed. Let me end the lesson with this. It, it really is a real event that happened in the Bible. There's this, there's this man that is on his way down the road to Damascus. And he's going on, his road, on the road to Damascus with letters in his hands to take people who are following the way, Jesus Christ, and to get them together so they can be taken back to, to Jerusalem. And as he's on this way, and, and you think, well, that, how horrible could that be? You're trying to take people that are Christians out of the world so they won't be the lights anymore, they won't be the salt of the earth. But that's his, that's his mission. That's his mission. He's going down the road, and then all of a sudden this light shines out of heaven. He can't see. Somebody's got to guide him from that point into the city of Damascus. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he wants to know, Saul that is, wants to know, what do I do next? What's next on the agenda? I'm blind, I can't see. He's laid into the city, and there's a man by the name of Ananias who's appointed to go talk to him. about the good and perfect and acceptable will of God that he could obey. Now Saul, excuse me, Ananias knew all about the background. He knew all about the circumstances. He knew what he was coming for. He knew that his name had a bad reputation. What's the point of going to talk to this man? And Ananias does. And he talks to him about the man whose voice he heard that blinded him with that bright light. And he was washed. He was baptized. And then, just seemingly within a few hours, here he is. He's teaching other people about this Son of God. That saved him. And a lot of people couldn't believe what they were hearing. But he wasn't doing it for them. He wasn't transformed for them. He was transformed by the mercies of God because he sacrificed himself at the Lord's invitation. And then his life gave credibility to the absolute truth that he was teaching other people about this Jesus 
that good, acceptable, perfect will of God that he was proving, not just through words, but through life. If it can be done for Saul, it can be done for you, it can be done for me. It brings me to the identity of who I should be. If you're sitting here and you're struggling with great doubts, uncertainties, you can't figure out what you're supposed to do, then listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2 again. And then set out with humility and service in your heart to prove what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God, of which, of which, the world doesn't know. Yet God will allow you to be the one who can demonstrate it. What a blessing that would be. Do what's right while together we sing this song.